You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. your pulpit it's like sighting in a rifle I want to thank our praise team today they are now working with in-ear monitors and I don't like them I'll just be honest I couldn't hear the drums I didn't like them so we may send them back and spend that money on something else I don't know yet but they have uh, came up here last night trying to get everything synchronized. But uh, I like I like a drummer that just can rear back and go at it. Don't you? You like that too? Okay. Well, amen. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're looking today at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, right after Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, written by Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Wisest man in the world at that time is writing something that I think affects every one of us because we're talking today about tearing down and a time to tear down in order to rebuild. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Solomon says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, there is a time for everything. Amen? He said, there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the, under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you love us and that you care about us. Lord, as this day as we gather as a congregation, dear Lord, There are many, dear Lord, that have gone through these these hallways and through these rooms, dear Lord, especially down there in the old building. And Father, we thank you for every life that was invested in a part of that. Lord, we praise you for that. Dear Lord, there are a lot of changed lives because of the commitment and the faith and the testimony of those people that once filled those rooms downstairs. But Father, we thank you now too for a future. 
that you have a hope and a future, as Jeremiah 29, 11 says. And Lord, I thank you that, dear Lord, in a community, in a city, when so many churches have, dear Lord, closed and or sold out or moved out into the suburbs, that, dear Lord, this church continues to stand as a, as a light, as a beacon of light a community that so desperately needs to see the love of Christ. Lord, I thank you for these that are here. I thank you for our guests, but I especially thank you for our members. For those people that have persevered and stood strong and continue to carry the weight. Father, this room in this right now, the people that are in this room, many of them have no idea of how many children are brought in here on Wednesday nights loaded up on van after van, literacy programs that are teaching children how to read the Bible for the first time, hallways and rooms that are full of children that are hearing the stories of Jesus on Wednesday night. Lord, we thank you for those. A rock that is filled with youth and teenagers that, dear Lord, are hearing the gospel, college students that are here. Lord, we thank you for the testimony and the witness, the homeless that are fed, dear Lord, the homebound that are visited, food pantry that operates through the week and the clothing closet, all the ministries, dear Lord, that continue. Lord, I remember when Jan Bozeman walked into this building about a year and a half ago. Her and her two little boys walked up and down the hallways, went in there. She smiled at one point that old building and said, you know, the smells take you back a long time ago. I remember when Jan Bozeman and those two little boys of hers, she loaded them up in that, in that vehicle, Lord, as they left that parking lot and I looked and I could see her crying. But I told her, Jan, your dad's testimony lives on. And Father, we thank you for that and for the other testimonies of others that live on. Now, Lord, may we be faithful. May you bless us, dear Lord, and strengthen us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, I thought it was strange today. I was watching the Weather Channel this morning, and they were showing the scene of the Texas Stadium uh, being taken down. They had it full of explosives, and the, they were bringing that building down. And I thought about all the memories in that in that stadium where the Dallas Cowboys had played football for so many years. I thought it was fascinating. And I couldn't help but think about men like Tom Landry, Roger Staubach, some of those great men in, uh, in, in the past and the legacy of that team. And then, and then to see, in a matter of moments, that building come down. Boy, it was something. It was something to watch, even watching on the news. Well, you know, this is what Solomon says. You know, Solomon is writing here and he's telling us that in life we have to recognize that there are times, there are seasons, there are moments in our lives when things are going to change. Okay? This church has gone through a lot of change. It's had to make a lot of changes and, and it's not been easy. You know, it's never easy to change because we get attached to things. We... Uh, I always laugh because Sheila, she gets attached to, to things. You know, we, we can go trade a car and as we're leaving, she'll be crying as we're leaving the parking lot and looking back as if it's a long lost friend. And, and, uh, and I'll just look at, you know, men are not like that. We're just not quite like that. 
You know, we kind of, you know, hey, how do you like this new gadget here? Look at it. You know, we're driving out of the car a lot. Boy, we're all excited about this new car. But she's looking back and she's crying. She'll even give a car a name. Esmeralda, I don't know what she called them. I mean, she had all kinds of names. But that was a part of her. You see, it's hard to change because we get attached to things. They begin to take on meaning. And Solomon recognized that, and yet Solomon said this. He said, listen, there is a time for everything. Aren't you glad that when you go to the airport, that you don't look out there and see a plane that looks about like the Wright brothers flew? You know somebody this past week talking about the Polish president, and we need to pray for Poland the president and many of their military leaders and many of their political leaders were killed just in a moment. And someone yesterday, a man who was qualified to say it, said this, they had no business being on that old plane. Well, you know, that may be true. And you see, I'm, I'm glad that sometimes it's changed. When I go to Enterprise to rent a car, if I'm somewhere else, I'm glad they don't pull up in a Model T. Now, you may smile and say, well, you know, I rode in a Model T, and I loved a Model T. Well, that's great. There's nothing wrong with a Model T, and it might be cute, it might be fun. We might enjoy riding in a Model T, but you wouldn't enjoy it all the way to California. You had to make that trip. I loved, uh, when I was a kid, we had an old 1961 Ford Galaxy. Clyde, you remember those? Yeah, he can remember that. That thing, didn't, it didn't have air conditioning. It didn't have an FM radio. It had an AM radio. And air conditioning was when you were doing about 70 miles an hour. And there wasn't car seats. There wasn't seat belts or nothing. Man, we'd be doing 70 miles an hour down a two-lane highway hanging out the windows, you know. I mean, you know, it was just the way it was. But I want you to know something today. I thank God for air conditioning. I thank God for some of the perks and the advantages today that are no longer there. You see, time is, time is going to change. Things are going to change. There's a, you know, the writer here says, Solomon says this. He said, listen, there's a time to be born. There's a time to plant. There's a time to gather. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to keep. There's a time to love. Sheila and I have discovered something, especially when we went overseas. It's not easy to throw away things. We'd look at each other even as we were going through stuff, and we'd make a statement like this, you're not going to throw that away, are you? You ever pulled up at your house and your wife do spring cleaning and you pull up and something you love sitting out there by the road, by the garbage can, and you get it and take it and put it in the car and drive up to the car and say, you're not going to throw that away, are you? I wore a shirt the other day. It was frayed. It's a shirt I've worn for years. I love that shirt. It's frayed all around the edges. It's, it's, it's a green shirt, but it's white all around the edges here. It's, all, it's, it's, it's frayed all around the... And I wore that shirt. Man, I love that shirt. And I met Amy and a businessman in, in, a, in a coffee shop. And, and we, we discussed business and talked and had a great time. And afterwards, uh, Sheila said, Amy came back in and said, Mom, Dad's got to throw that shirt away. <laughs> and so Sheila had it where she was going to throw it. And this just happened in the last, probably in the last couple of weeks. She was going to throw that shirt away. And I walked in and I said, what are you doing with my shirt? She said, you've got to throw that shirt away. 
I said, man, but it feels so good. It just broke in. You see, it is difficult in our lives to let go of material things. We get attached to them. They, they take on meaning. They, they, they mean something to us. They, they have memories. That building down there, in a moment, we're going to go down there and we're going to have a time of prayer. We're going to sing and we're going to sing victory in Jesus and we're going to have a time of prayer. And in that building, and I've done it many a time, this has been, a, this has been the most difficult journey as a minister I've ever had in my life. But I want you to understand this. A lot of times when I was hurting, that's where I would go and I would spend time in prayer. And I would think about all the memories in that building. People that were married in that building. People whose funerals had taken place there. People who had been saved, their salvations, they'd come down that aisle. People who had been baptized by different men in this church. I thought about, boy, it's full of of memories. And we get attached to spiritual things. But hear me, secondly, if we're not careful, the past can clutter our lives. You see, we can get caught up in that, in maintaining the clutter. You you know, um, there's a danger sometimes in our life we get too many whatnots. I've never understood whatnots. Maybe somebody can explain that to me. All this Chinese-made stuff that we get that's what we call whatnots. You know, they fill up the shelves and we have them everywhere and periodically we have to dust them and clean them off. And you know, that's what Paul said. You know what Paul said? He said, you know, while preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. In the Greek, Paul said this, I never want to be a whatnot on God's shelf. But you see, if we're not careful, sometimes the past and things out of the past can clutter our lives and we spend all of our time trying to take care of it. A parent can do that. We lose our focus. You know, even as a parent sometimes, you can have so many whatnots, so many material things. I was talking about a, uh, or with a family this week or about another family and they're having great difficulty in this family. I say, you know, I just don't understand why this family cannot make it financially. That man makes good money. Somebody immediately responded, said this, the problem is he has too many toys. You see, that's what the enemy will do. And the enemy will clutter our lives, even with things out of the past, to the point that we'll lose our focus, and we're so busy keeping it up that we forget why. You know, a mom can do that. A mom can be busy keeping a beautifully clean, immaculate house. She's got everything. I mean, our clothes are done, the closets are clean, everything is dusted, the meal is cooked. I mean, it is, it is absolutely immaculate. There's only one problem, she forgot to be a mom. You see, that's the enemy. And so what Solomon does is Solomon says, listen, we have to be careful that we don't become attached to. There's a time to build and there's a time to tear down. There's a time to accumulate and there's a time to spring clean and throw away because if we don't, it'll clutter our lives, we'll lose our focus, and my friend, it will hurt us. You know, I wrote this down. To me, I thought, boy, it's so true. This way of life can rob us of new beginnings and new opportunities and the potential of the future because we're hanging on to the past. 
Why? Because sometimes our enemy can keep us busy trying to maintain the remnants of the past. You know what? I got to figuring. Do you know how much that building cost this church a year to maintain? Probably about $11,000 a year. And I can tell you this much. We absolutely as a congregation cannot afford it. We can't. You see, I, I, I spoke over at Mississippi College a while back to a group of students, and I told them at Southside Baptist, I said, we cannot afford a dinosaur. In other words, if we have a program, if we have anything that doesn't work, we, that we lack the resources, we have to kill it. We can't just keep it going. And boy, that is so true. So we're always evaluating based on need. So let me, let me give you a quote here. Listen to this. No longer, sometimes when we no longer have the personnel or the resources to maintain something, then we have to do away with it. And that's where we are right now. The insurance company has told us that the building has to come down. I like this life lesson here. It says, when we insist on hanging on to the relics of the past, we're often robbed of the glories of the future. Boy, that is so true. So number one, stay with me here, there is a time to tear down. But number two, there's a time to build up. Now I want you to go over in your Bibles and I want you to look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13... Jesus is talking about building. And he's talking about building the church. Building up the church. And in Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 he says this, And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, he said, Who do people say that I the Son of Man am? Now everybody look this way. In Matthew chapter 16 verse 13, Jesus pulls this congregation, he pulls this little remnant of men into a private place, into a place in which he could speak to them. He's talking about the future. They're just a remnant. This church for a long time has operated on a remnant, a handful of men and women who have diligently held on to a vision. And so Jesus pulls these men in. And he asks them this question. This is the ecclesia. In the Greek, ekkaleo. He is calling out these men and he's dealing with one question here and it is the, the identity of Jesus Christ himself. He wants to know what they are hearing and what they believe to be the identity of Christ then and now. And I want you to know something. That is the most critical issue of our day. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Jesus Christ, in talking about the identity of Christ, he said he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And this scholar of Oxford who converted to Christianity believed him to be the Lord. Today, the validity and the historicity of Christ is under attack like it's never been before. That would be a good question to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? 
And so Jesus here, first of all, he turns and he asks his disciples, what is the public out there saying? Give me the public opinion. What are they saying out there in the marketplace? And like little children, those disciples begin to respond. Some say you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Some say that you're Elijah, the one who stood against Ahab and Jezebel. Some say that you're a prophet from the Old Testament. And they begin to give answer after answer. Now stay with me here. Every one of these disciples were giving Jesus a compliment. These were powerful figures out of the Old Testament. These were spiritual movers and shakers. This was an honor. What the public was saying about Jesus was an honor. But Jesus did not respond with, wow, or gosh, did they really say that about me? Jesus didn't blush. These things meant nothing to him. They were empty. They were meaningless notoriety. They were empty statements of popularity. They meant nothing. Muhammad says in the Quran that Jesus was the greatest of prophets. But my friend, if Muhammad does not believe him to be the Son of God, he, calls, he gives Jesus a compliment in one passage and turns right around in another passage of the Quran and calls Jesus a liar. You see, there's nowhere here that Jesus is amazed or enthralled by what the public believed. He ignored the public. He said to these disciples, the public is wrong. My friend, Jesus is not an item on the world's cafeteria line of religion. Jesus did not brag. He didn't even acknowledge. He said the public is wrong. And don't get caught up in it. You know, and I've often wondered, I thought about this week, why? Perhaps maybe the disciples might have been tempted to say, you know, Jesus, that's better than nothing. You know, those are some good things. Come on, Jesus, cheer up a little bit. I mean, think of it. You're, they're, they're referring to you as Jeremiah or Elijah, one of the prophets. You ought to be encouraged by that. That's a good thing. And maybe the disciples were wanting to kind of slip into a pattern to where they might be tempted to accept that as as being worth something. Well, that's better than nothing at all. My friend, listen. Anything less than Jesus Christ is the Son of God is an affront, is an insult to Jesus. The Sanhedrin could accept the fact that he was prophet. The Quran, Muhammad, the Muslim world can accept that he's a prophet. The humanist can accept that he's a prophet. The Buddhist, the Hindu can accept that Jesus Christ was a prophet and a great teacher. They just simply cannot accept that he is the Christ, the Son of God. What about you? He would demand an answer out of every person in this room. Why? Because what you and I think about Jesus, our level of commitment, what we believe, how that is interpreted out in our lives, the convictions that we hold to are everything. Jesus was asking the question here, what is the truth? And your understanding of truth and my understanding of truth, that is a critical issue in our day. 
I don't think we understand just how critical the issue of truth is in America and in the world today because we live in a, we live in a culture today where many are saying there is no truth. There are no absolutes. Erwin Lutzer in his book, Christ Among Other Gods, listen to what he said. Young parents need to listen closely. He said, truth, it is assumed, might exist in mathematics and science, but not in religion or morality. The pressure to accept this uncritical tolerance is growing every day. Alan Bloom said in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, states, listen to this parent, that the educational system of America believes that the purpose of, a, of education is not to make scholars, but provide them with a moral virtue. Do you know what that virtue is? Openness. Openness. He goes on to say the quest for truth is short-circuited because truth, now listen to this, if it exists at all, is beyond our reach. Wow. Why is this important? Jesus was asking these little remnant here that he gathered here. He said, listen, the Old Testament is about to be finished. We're building something new here. You're just a remnant. But the real issue here is what is truth? What is the truth? You see, it's a progression. Now, I'll close in a moment, but stay with me here. You see, it's a progression here. Because listen, number one, young parents, you especially listen. Because you need to understand. If we believe truth is relative, if there is no absolutes, then we forfeit a quest for truth. Or worse, we believe that it does not exist. If truth, number two, does not exist, then we lose our values. We no longer believe that because truth exists, that there are nothing, there's no values. If we lose our values, then we lose our moral compass. If we lose our moral compass, then there's no boundaries, there's no perimeters, there's no moral and ethical restraints. In other words, what we believe is, what's right for you may be all right for you, but what's right for me is something different. The truth becomes relative. Once that happens, we look like school children left to themselves with no authority figure at all. I remember when I was in the second grade, the teacher, mean, boy, mean teacher, big teacher, a woman. And uh, she had, you know the paddle, you know those little paddles that had the ball and the rubber band? She had one of those that she had, it didn't have the rubber band and the ball. I don't know if they made those paddles bigger in those days. They might have been made better like everything else. And uh, she had that thing in the drawer. And uh, she had to get up and go out of the classroom for a minute. Now she said, I want you to continue to do your work till I get back. And she looked at uh, one little girl and said, you take names if anybody talks. She wasn't out of the room good. I went over and got the broom handle and I got up behind her desk on the chair and turned the clock to the time to get out for the end of the day. And I ran back and sat down. The teacher came back in, 
All of a sudden, the class started giggling and laughing, and she looked over at the little girl that had been kept, was supposed to keep names, and for some reason, she didn't give my name, but finally, she kind of looked, and she pointed up toward the clock. And then the teacher began to interrogate this girl and ask her, well, now, who was it, and who was it? And finally, the little girl said it was Jeffrey Parker. And there I was, guilty. And I will never forget that. That teacher called me up there. And uh, she leaned me across that desk, right there in front of all my peers. She pulled that little paddle out, and it sounded like, whoop, 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 whoop. I mean, buddy, she was going to town. Man, it hurt. I mean, it really bothered me. And I went home, and I, and I told my parents, and they got a lawyer, and we sued that school. No, I'm teasing. You see, I was a child. I thought that I could speed up the day. I thought I could redefine the day. I thought that I could take authority over the teacher, over the principal, over the superintendent of education. I was my own authority. I'll do with it what I want to until I met a higher authority. And you say, well, that was a teacher. No. (laughs) Who do you think it was? What happened when you got in trouble years ago at school? Got in trouble when you got home. You see, once we say there's no truth, or truth is relative to my personal opinions, then we lose our values, we lose our moral compass. And hear me, for those that are visiting today, who once were members here, we are in the middle of one of the most dangerous cities in America. We are desperately desperately on Wednesday night, bringing in 40 children and youth and children and teenagers and college students who have no understanding, many of them, of the truth. I sat with a group of children the other day out of this community about a month ago. They didn't know the first book of the Bible. They didn't know the last book of the Bible. They didn't know who David and Goliath were. They didn't know what sin meant. They knew absolutely nothing about nothing. When I got through, I called a friend of mine in Dallas, Texas, and I, and I said to him, I said, I might as well have been in Africa. I said, we are losing this city. These children knew absolutely nothing about Christ or the Word of God. That's why this remnant is still here. We can't get them up and get them here for 9 o'clock Sunday school. Because they come out of an environment and a culture in which many a Saturday night is spent partying and raising hell. And they have no one to pick them up and encourage them to be here. And so we're here. You see... Because we believe in truth. But there's a moral compass that's been lost in America. I was reading a story. Woody Allen, Woody Allen, who was involved in a sexual relationship with his stepdaughter, made this statement. He said, the heart wants what it wants. Did you hear that? Stay with me. The heart wants what it wants. Erwin Lutzer, in reaction to that, said this then whatever my heart believes becomes right for me. You remember when Tiger Woods was called in the 
one moral failure after another. Britt Hume, Britt Hume on national TV said this. He said, I would suggest that Tiger Woods turn to Christianity because it is the only religion of the world which he can find forgiveness and life after all of these mistakes. My friend, do you understand? Do you have any idea how much Brit Hume has gone through after he made that statement? He could have been a Muslim. He could have been a Buddhist. He could have been a Hindu. But because he was a Christian, he has been, cast, he's been, he's been ostracized and alienated from all of his peers. But I want you to know something. Tiger Woods is not in conflict with his belief system. He is a Buddhist. He is merely a reflection and a demonstration of what he believes. And so are you. And so am I. What was Christ saying to these followers? He was saying, listen, the public opinion is wrong. Don't believe it. Then he turns and says, what do you say? Peter, the spokesman of the group, looks at him, stands at a full stature, probably the biggest man in the group. Towering figure. Bearded, rough fisherman. He looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ. You are the Christos. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow. He was saying, I know who you are and I'm not afraid to say it. I know who you are and I'm not afraid to live by it. I know who you are and I'm not afraid to tell others. Can I ask you something? Does what you believe in any way, is it in any way reflected in how you live? Does anyone around you where you work know that not only do you love Christ, but you are concerned about their lost soul? Or have you gotten so used to it that nobody knows whether you care whether they die and go to hell or not? You've seen the, seen the story this week. You know, the Bible says we are adopted by Christ, adopted in Christ. Wow, what a beautiful picture. You seen the story this week, a little Russian boy? Little Russian boy that's adopted into an American family. They have difficulty handling him, not knowing what to do with him. He has violent outrage and just just explodes and, and has some personality problems in this. And so what the mother finally does in desperation, she just carries him to the airport, puts him on a plane, a little boy, and sends him back where he came from. Your God will never do that with you. He loves you. You see, now He won't tolerate disobedience, but He won't send you back because He loves you. Let's stand. With heads bowed and with eyes closed, just a moment in prayer. With heads bowed and with eyes closed, nobody looking around, just a moment of prayer. Can I ask you something today? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who is He? 
and what you believe about Christ, how is it evidenced in your life? You see, Jesus is not talking about tearing down here. He's talking about building the church. But the only way you'll build a church is when God's people understand and know who He is. Because see, once we are convinced that Jesus Christ is the only answer and the only hope, then it will be reflected in how we talk, how we live, how we witness, how we raise our children, how we parent, how we grandparent, how we handle our finances, how we handle how we make every decision of our life. It will affect every area of our life. Because we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. He's the only hope of salvation. God doesn't have another plan. He's the only plan. And once we become convinced of that, and we're sure of it, and Christ is living in our hearts, that we begin to go out and shake the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, you may say, you know, Pastor, listen, it, it'd be easy to leave here. It'd be easy for me to leave. It'd be easy for you to leave. It'd be easy to say, man, it, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of 40 little children running around me on Wednesday nights. I'm tired of the teenagers. I'm tired of the youth. I'm tired of the difficulty of the, of the work that I do. My friend, I know this. And if I, I don't do it, it may not get done. That's why I'm here. And that's why you're here. There's a time to build. But it is centered on understanding who Christ is. Do you know Christ? Have you given Him your heart and your life? If not, I want to pray for you right now. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank You and we love You. And we pray today, dear Lord, if there's one here, one man, one woman, one boy, one girl who, dear Lord, has never given their heart to You. They've never been saved. They're not a Christian. They don't know if they died where they would spend eternity. But You're speaking to their heart. You're inviting them right now. You're pleading with them. And that simple statement that Peter made is what they need to say right now. Jesus Christ you are the, as the African said, Zira Umwechete. You are the only way. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. And right now be my Lord and my Savior. I thank you.